Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. This time, our guest is Emily Choi, who is a Juris Doctor and Master of Global Affairs candidate at the University of Toronto and the Mount School of Global Affairs and Public Policy in Canada. She previously served as legal intern at the Permanent Court of Arbitration in Singapore and at the Mechanism of International Criminal Tribunals in The Hague. Her current research interests include international law, cultural and natural heritage protection, governance institutions and access to justice in the Arctic region. She was also a fellow for the Policy Law Science Nexus in the Polar Regions panel for the 2020 Polar Law Symposium. Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's Bookshelf podcast. My name is Saga Helgeson, and I am joined by my co-host Roman Shufar. Hello everyone. Hi Saga. And uh, just some exciting news. Our podcast is actually now available on Spotify, so feel free to check us out there as well. Today we're having a chat with Emily Choi who's a visiting fellow here at the Arctic Institute. Nice to have you, Emily. Hello, it's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much. So just sort of starting off on a, on a very light note, how did you become interested in the Arctic? What brought you here? Oh, that's a pretty long story. But to summarize it, uh, when I was in elementary school, one of the teachers had us color in the coat of arms of Nunavut. And I thought, oh, I've never seen a narwhal before. So I was coloring it in. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And since then, I went on some winter camping trips in the south. And I loved the snow and I loved the cold. And that got me looking up to different places where there is snow and cold. And of course, that is the Arctic. Um, and then in my undergraduate studies, one of my professors kindly took me on as an intern for the Gordon Foundation which is an NGO based in Canada. Uh, it's a philanthropic organization, and they do a lot of really good work with uh, Indigenous youth in the Northern Territories. And I helped him uh, do some research on that. And since then, I've just been totally hooked, and I've had the opportunity to visit to Canada's three Northern Territories, Alaska, and other parts of the Arctic as well. And I'm just absolutely enamored, and I'm, I'm so happy uh, to be here as a visiting fellow. I love how your interest in the Arctic came from uh, from coloring in. <laughs> it did, yeah, it did. And yeah, it's it's you know everyone has their own own way. To get uh, onto um, topic that we're gonna be discussing today, uh, you started working on this concept called uh, underwater cultural heritage. This sounds pretty foreign to me, and maybe I guess the first picture that comes in my head is the Titanic at the bottom of the Atlantic with its cultural artifacts. Am I, am I on the right track here? You are absolutely on the right track here. And we can talk a little Perfect. bit about the Titanic later because that is a great example of underwater cultural heritage in international law. And I, I guess the most well-known example then. Yes, yes it is. Yeah, so um, could you maybe perhaps uh, just start by breaking it down for us and describing what you mean by this term, underwater cultural heritage, in your own words? 
For sure. I think under, under international law, underwater cultural heritage is mostly concerned with shipwrecks like the Titanic that you mentioned, but also with other famous Arctic shipwrecks like HMS Erebus and Terror and the Investigator. Aside from just shipwrecks, it also deals with other artifacts such as fish traps, uh, submerged buildings and other artifacts left by indigenous peoples, left by whaling fleets uh, during the 18th and 19th century, um, left by other scientists and other European explorers and researchers. And so the underwater cultural heritage in the Arctic region is quite rich and it really documents uh, how long humans have interacted with Arctic waters uh, since time immemorial. Thanks, Emily. Um, you mentioned the international legal framework. So could you, could you talk to us about how underwater cultural heritage and uh, the law of the sea intersect? For sure. Uh, the international legal framework for underwater cultural heritage across the world is quite fragmented. Uh, at best, it's made up with a patchwork of a couple provisions of the Convention of, law, of the Law of the Sea, in certain areas, the 2001 UNESCO Convention on the Preservation of under, Underwater Cultural Heritage applies. There's other frameworks in the EU, the 1992 Valletta Convention, and all of these different treaties and conventions apply depending on where the underwater cultural heritage is. And it also protects different types of underwater cultural heritage. Uh, so in certain cases, that would deal with matters of an archaeological or historical nature, and that's what the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea protects. Um, the 2001 UNESCO Convention protects something a lot broader. It protects all traces of human existence uh, underwater, uh, which is a lot broader than ar archaeological and historical. Uh, in the Arctic region, uh, it's also a patchwork and it's also fragmented, but for example, the 2001 UNESCO Convention doesn't apply very neatly there because none of the Arctic states are parties to the 2001 UNESCO Convention. However, in the high seas in the Arctic region, um, observer states like uh, France and Italy who, who do research on underwater cultural heritage uh, would have to abide by the 2001 UNESCO Convention and that has a series of reporting requirements back to not only their home state, but also to other parties to the convention. So when we look at international law and in particular international hard law uh, through the perspective of treaties and conventions, we see there is a patchwork of laws that apply. I think in your work lately, you've been focusing, as you said, on, on polar law. So the study of the many components of law and policy relating to, to the Arctic and the Antarctic. And you've mentioned some of the legal framework or like a comprehensive answer on the, on the legal framework as well. But in what way does cultural heritage and underwater cultural heritage at the pools uh, differ from the rest of the world? I think even between the pools, the laws on underwater cultural heritage are still quite different. Um, in, in the Arctic area, you do have general international law that applies. Um, and of course, the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by states and Antarctica is quite the opposite. Uh, so I think when you look at underwater cultural heritage in Antarctica, you're really looking at any kind of traces that might exist 
on land uh, in certain lakes or other streams and other bodies of waters on the Antarctic continent. Um, and in that case, you still have all the legal frameworks that apply. And so in the Arctic, I think that is, that is similar, but I think in the Arctic, you have just a lot more of the objects and the artifacts and probably a better argument to be made that something has to be done to protect it, something that's more comprehensive uh, and more similar to something like the 1992 Valletta Convention of the European Union. And this convention is a regional convention that governs the protection of cultural heritage, both above ground and underwater, and everything that's in between half submerged and half not submerged. Um, and this provides some kind of consistent degree of protection for any kind of archaeology or any kind of activities done in this region. And I think that's, that's what would be different in Europe versus the North Pole and the South Pole is that you have this harmonization that you don't see in the poles. Are there specific rules and principles that apply coherently to, to both poles? And is there a specific Arctic underwater cultural heritage framework? There is not a specific underwater cultural heritage framework for the Arctic and the Antarctic. Instead, what applies is that general body of international law uh, that, uh, that governs underwater cultural heritage protection all over the world. Uh, so there is nothing specific in the poles, but I think this is problematic because the poles are particularly susceptible, as we know, to climate change. And how this affects underwater cultural heritage in particular is that if we have melting ice caps, that changes the composition of how the ocean is, and that will uh, that will change the percentage of ocean acidification. I'm no scientist, so I'm, I can't explain to you exactly how. But studies have shown that changes in ocean acidification does impact the structural integrity of underwater cultural heritage. And if we see these changes happening a lot quicker in the Arctic region, that could damage a lot of shipwrecks that may be worthy of protection. And, uh, and that's happening quite rapidly. And that's a good argument to be made about something has to be done. And maybe that answer is a law and maybe or maybe that answer is not in law. So that's one aspect that, that I think is a good argument to be made for a Arctic and an Antarctic-specific regime. And another argument to be made is that the Arctic and Antarctic regions are still generally underexplored by tourists, or a lot of tourists don't go to these regions as opposed to the Mediterranean or uh, the Caribbean. And in the Mediterranean and the Caribbean, what we have seen historically is that there has been a lot of looting uh, done to shipwrecks in these areas, and that damages the shipwreck itself because you have untrained individuals just going to explore these shipwrecks and you know destroying the sides of the ships in doing so, or they're looting and they're taking valuable historical objects without the opportunity of states to intervene and to protect these objects. And as the Arctic and the Antarctic regions are warming, and I think especially as tourism has drastically increased in the Arctic region, uh, there probably should be an applicable legal framework to govern tourist activities related to underwater cultural heritage in the Arctic that we just haven't seen so far. Um, so these are some upcoming legal gaps that, that can be addressed. When you talk about climate change, obviously, uh, I think we can all agree that's you know, one of the principal challenges that are facing the Arctic at the moment. And, and like you say, with the underwater cultural heritage and, and also with the looting, that's something that I 
didn't really um, think would be an issue. But but obviously, yes, especially if if there are some valuable you know items. Um, I'm wondering, sort of, apart from climate change, are there any other challenges facing uh, underwater cultural heritage in the Arctic apart from these? I think those are two big ones that I can think of a couple more. So one might be the opening of the Northwest Passage and the increased use of the transpolar route or the Northern Sea route. You see ships polluting in these waters and that pollution can cause damage to the structural integrity of shipwrecks that lay below. And the shipwrecks, as we know from Erebus and Terror, they're not that deep. Uh, so any pollution and discharge from ships are likely to damage these shipwrecks. And second, I think that there's a question of, of national pride, too, is that as um, I don't personally believe that the Arctic will be a zone of conflict anytime in the future. But in the in the case that it does and in the case that states elect leaders that feel the need to assert their sovereignty in the north, I think that underwater cultural heritage might be one venue of which they will be uh, able to do that. So, for example, you saw in Canada, spend so much money under Stephen Harper to look for HMS Erebus and Terror, which is important from, I think, a scientific and a historical standpoint. But also, I think it's an important from a national pride standpoint. And I think uh, some of the gaps that we see in legal protection is that the current laws governing underwater cultural heritage is so fragmented and there's no harmonized legal regime, which means that when countries elect leaders um, or they want to assert their their sovereignty over certain areas, you may have a, a race to the bottom in terms of instead of having cooperation governing how shipwrecks should be protected, you may have countries scrambling to go and look for shipwrecks and to go um, dredge them up. So earlier we mentioned the Titanic. The Titanic is governed by an international agreement, uh, which is great in terms of protecting the Titanic as uh, this the site of great human tragedy and also the site of great history. But you can see in an alternate scenario where you find another shipwreck and instead of having this comprehensive legal framework, a country will just go in and quickly excavate everything that is of value and, and leave the shipwreck that may not be of much value, even though you should, under the Convention of the Law of the Sea, make sure that all interactions with underwater cultural heritage are done for the benefit of mankind. And that's that's vaguely defined, but in general, that, that promotes cooperation over uh, unilateral action. And so you're basically saying that right now the framework is fragmented. You have, you know, an individual agreement on the Titanic, but not on other other shipwrecks. Not on other shipwrecks, uh, but or other artifacts. Yes. And, and with the exception of the very big exception of Erebus and Terror, where there are three agreements between Canada and the United Kingdom governing, firstly, the eventual discovery of uh, Erebus and Terror. So Canada and the UK made this really interesting agreement where they say in the eventual discovery of these shipwrecks, this is how, uh, these are some principles as to how we want to govern our conduct. And once the shipwrecks were actually found, the two part, the two states, United Kingdom and Canada, really worked out how they wanted to work and interact with these shipwrecks. But that those two shipwrecks are the exception because they're simply so famous and they're so important to both Canada and the United Kingdom. Uh, but for the thousands of other shipwrecks that exists in the AMAP area and the 700 or so that exists north of the Arctic Circle, there simply isn't that kind of 
dedicated legal protection that you see in the Titanic and Erebus and Terror. Um, going back to the Northwest Passage and, and to Canada, I'm curious, what, what is the situation like regarding underwater cultural heritage in Canada and more specifically in, in the Canadian Arctic? Yeah, the situation in Canada follows the international trend of fragmentation, and I think that's partially because of how much Canada is a federal system. So in Canada, you have national laws that mostly govern the import and export of archaeological objects, and that prevents illegal and illicit trafficking of of certain objects uh, from the Canadian Arctic and elsewhere. So any objects that are brought within Canadian waters must be reported to the receiver of REC uh, if, if that laws apply. Uh, so at a national level, there's that reporting requirement. There's also at the national level, certain laws that protect uh, shipwrecks that fall in under Parks Canada's jurisdiction, which is quite limited uh, across Canada because they only look at certain pieces of land or pieces or marine areas, but also uh, in in the Arctic, Parks Canada has jurisdiction over quite some land, uh, but they don't have a lot of jurisdiction over, of course, all of it and all the relevant underwater cultural heritage. So to the extent where underwater cultural heritage falls under Parks Canada's jurisdiction, Parks Canada as an agency has an obligation to take care of it and to report and make annual reports on it to other agencies and to the public and to ensure public access to it. And that's about the extent of what the federal government does. Uh, But at the territorial level, and I'll just use Nunavut as an example, there are quite some other regulations that apply. And these regulations in, in Nunavut's case really try to make sure that any interaction with underwater cultural heritage or archaeology in Nunavut in general is is conducted on the basis of equity and making sure that it's not extractive in light of the colonial history that Canada has with the North and to make sure that there's consultations and there's adequate communication between the Inuit and um, South, mostly Southern researchers that go up there. Uh, so for example, in Nunavut, before you even want to start to do research on an object, what you have to do is you have to get a permit under the archaeological regulations to start doing research. And I think the existence of a permitting requirement is, is very good for honest researchers, just making sure that they are complying with uh, re- regulations regarding culture and making sure that their activities are not extractive. So I think permitting requirements are very good. But of course, you know, you're going to always have some bad apples that will do research without permitting, not because they don't know about it, but because they just don't want to share their finds with other people. But I think those people are in the minority and not not the majority. Um, So that's one way that the laws in Nunavut do regulate some activity relating to underwater cultural heritage is the requirement of a permit. Um, But of course, that does change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So that doesn't apply. in in Greenland, for example, which is one of its neighbor, and I'm not sure if that would apply, or if a similar provision exists in Northwest Territories and Yukon. My suspicion my suspicion is that it, it does, but I'm I'm not too sure about that. Uh, so it's it's still fragmented. You still as so if you are a researcher and you wanted to look at a shipwreck that you you read about and you want to learn more about it and you want to go dive and explore it, you'd have to navigate 
federal laws and territorial laws. And just as an aside, I think what should be done about that is something that should be that something that's being done very similar to the science cooperation agreement right now, where scientists wishing to do research in none of it also have to navigate the national and the territorial level of regulations, which can be complicated and is a lot. But because of the science agreement, there is motivation from national governments to coordinate these kinds of bureaucratic processes. So I know that Polar Knowledge Canada is trying to come up with a checklist to make scientists' lives a lot easier in terms of figuring out which kinds of permits that they need. And I would say that um, to the extent that archaeological and underwater cultural heritage is a distinct uh, category of research from general scientific research, I think a similar approach should be taken in, in terms of harmonizing and making research easier on underwater cultural heritage. So if we're going a little bit back to the history of, um, you know, the, the reason why we have these um, underwater cultural heritage sites, we've already talked about a few of them, but could you maybe say what is your favorite underwater cultural heritage in the Arctic? I don't want to fall into stereotypes here, but I will definitely have to say it's the story of HMS Erebus and Terror and their search for the Northwest Passage. I think that story is just a great cast of characters involved. You had uh, Sir John Franklin, who was the governor of a, a region in Australia, I think it was Australia, and he was down there and then he went back to Britain. He was old, his uh, no one really wanted to send him abroad anymore, but then his wife, Lady Jane Franklin, really lobbied for the British government to put him on a ship in the Arctic as this prestige mission. And of course he went. And it's just this great culmination of the follies of British expeditions in the Arctic, where they could have just asked the Inuit for directions as to what, what's going on. They didn't, and they died. And their death was, of course, a tragedy. But I think you learn so much from the shipwreck in terms of their last days and the surrounding archaeological sites. And I think it's, one, a great a great reminder for Canadians to really uh, listen to the Inuit and doing research because this is an example of what happens when you don't. And I think the history behind Erebus and, and Terror, and they and Erebus and Terror are fun ships because they also went to Antarctica. Uh, and then they, they also did expeditions in, in the Arctic as well. And it just shows how global scientific research can be. And I think that era is is um, a great historical era. And there's a great there's a great book on this called Erebus, and in case you're interested, yeah, it's it's so interesting, and also as as you said, like listening to the indigenous people as well, and to the Inuit uh, for exploration, and the same story uh, came again when uh, actually it was time to try and find those ruins, those sites. Brits didn't listen to the Inuit in the first place, and then when it came to finding uh, the the ships, they didn't listen to the uh, Inuit in the second place, which, again, history repeating itself there. It's, it's just so typical how, how, how stubborn we can be. <laughs> stubborn or foolish. I think there are similar adjectives in this situation. In understanding how the different types of underwater cultural heritage that exists in the Arctic, I find that the literature is almost exclusively on shipwrecks, which is which is fine. I think there is shipwrecks are interesting sites, and I only got my scuba diving license pretty recently, 
Um, and I, I think it'd be cool to be able to explore a shipwreck one day. But I think the other Definitely side, very cool. yeah, yeah. But I don't know about um, ice diving. That sounds like a pretty scary thing to do. Uh, but you know, maybe when the waters warm up a bit, might be able to do less ice diving and more just regular diving up there. Uh, but I also think it's it's interesting, and I think the under-researched area of underwater cultural heritage in general, especially from a legal perspective, is the non-shipwreck elements of underwater cultural heritage. And these are fish traps, submerged buildings, and just evidence of coastal communities that exists in, in the north. And I think with the melting of the the Beringia Ice Bridge, um, you will probably get quite a few artifacts in between Russia and the United States. And I think that would be a pretty cool opportunity for cooperation between Russia and the United States, because I think that shows a really good history of, or a really good shared history between the two countries. And of course, there's a lot of other nations involved in the Great Migration. And I'm sure that there would be artifacts available there. But that's not really an area of study. I guess these are two minor artifacts to be considered, but I think they're important as well. Do you know how this would interact with indigenous rights? And I'll mean to whom the items or the sites would belong uh, eventually. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough question. And I don't think international law right now is very good to situated to answer these kinds of questions. And I know that there is a lot of movement now about restitution of objects that European powers collected in places that they colonized. That being said, that is a movement and that really, that movement emerges on the backs of a lot of voluntary activity from states and museums uh, and not necessarily because of any legal obligation. So I think that Right now, when you talk about indigenous artifacts in the Arctic, I think it's more likely than not that a state will just have ownership over that object. I think the right thing for states to do is to hand over that object to the appropriate indigenous group. But I don't think that they have any legal obligation to do that. But I'm not an expert in this area. Um, Just uh, wrapping a little bit back to the exploration part, there's actually... um... There's an Icelandic podcast that's uh, that's really popular uh, here. It's a historical show and it's called Iliosa Show. And I'll show if there are any Iceland Icelanders out there. You know what I'm talking about. So the host Vera, she actually she's done a few um, episodes on uh, these uh, explorations, both to the Arctic and the Antarctic. And there was one uh, where where she talks and and she um, gives uh, listeners insight into the Polaris expedition. Are you familiar with that one? And and the explorer Charles Francis Hall and um, his sort of mysterious death. Okay, is okay. it in Icelandic well, or is it in English? This podcast. It is. It is in Icelandic, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> Maybe Roman can can test his uh, Icelandic knowledge out. It just sort of highlights that that there is still interest in these expeditions and and putting them in a new light and in a new context, I think is very important. And that's why, you know, it's so good for us to be having this conversation. And we're actually going to be having another episode in the season where we're actually talking about Arctic exploration specifically and about sort of um, the narratives that relate to the Arctic. That's really great. So yeah, I'm excited for that podcast. 
I don't know when that will come up, but I will definitely check it out. Yeah, definitely. We're going to try to be mindful of your time, Emily. So perhaps on a more general note, um, so you're currently doing a double master, a JD, uh, MA, I don't know, I'm, I'm lost with all the, the Canadian uh, law degrees there. But could you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be an Arctic researcher in Canada? And also, I know you've been tapping a lot into uh, polar law lately, as I said. So can you tell us uh, what it's like to be a polar lawyer in, in Canada? Sure. I long for the day where I could credibly call myself a polar lawyer, but that's not me now, you but totally that's a are. dream. You totally are. <laughs> that's a dream. But I have to say, so at the University of Toronto, where I'm based, there is almost no Arctic studies here. I There was a course at some point. I think it has now disappeared. And because during COVID-19, I'm um, always looking for opportunities to build community and to meet other people. So I initially decided to create this Arctic Law Group at the university. And then someone who was interested in joining approached me and said, hey, I want to go to Antarctica one day. And do you think that this could be a platform for us to explore opportunities to go to Antarctica as lawyers, and I said, "Yeah, okay, I can happily rename my this club to be the Polar Law Group." And so that's how it became broader than just the Arctic. Uh, so I think at the University of Toronto, now that this club is there, it, there's only about six of us in this club. A combination of the Masters of Global Affairs students and law students, and of course, I'm sitting right in the middle of both of them. And it's nice. It's a small community, but it's really nice. And I think doing research on Arctic issues at the University of Toronto can be quite difficult. I think there is probably a grand total of five people who are affiliated with U of T currently who has any interest in the Arctic. And of course, I know all of them and I'm good friends with all of them. Um, but I think if you move outside of the University of Toronto, there is a quite a large group of Arctic researchers in Canada spread out across other institutions. But I would personally like to see a lot more effort somewhere because I'm graduating. I can't do it, but somewhere in terms of building that kind of community of Arctic young Arctic researchers uh, in Canada. It's a small but mighty group, it sounds like. <laughs> yes, but that, that applies, I think, to the entire field of Arctic research. I think it's a small but mighty group throughout the world. That's true, true. And I have um, one more um, question for you, and then, then we'll start to wrap it up. Looking to the future, what are you most excited about seeing in the Arctic as it develops? Um, you can relate this to underwater cultural heritage or anything else for that matter. Just what are you most excited about? I think I'm most excited for, firstly, the quantity of interest and research that's going in it, because I think if you have more people who come in with interests out of left field, like cultural heritage, for example, then you get to have kind of a great interdisciplinary conversation with people in, in fields that maybe you haven't really interacted with a lot. So I think it, it is nice to see a lot of people really interested in the Arctic in, I guess, in the last 15 years. Or so, I, I mean, 15 years, I wouldn't be personally witnessing that. But my speculation from looking at the scholarship is that there's really been this explosion especially after 2007, 2008. 
And that's great, I think, in terms of really advancing the field and understanding and whether or not there is a field distinct called Arctic law or not. And I think part of that, as well as part of the quality, you also see a rise in the, in the quality of research. So you see a lot of really good, interesting research coming out by a lot of young people. And as a young person myself, I really am inspired by that. I'm really inspired to see how early career researchers are developing their work in on the Arctic and on Arctic issues and finding a supportive community. So I think Twitter is a good example of that. You have a lot of really supportive people on Twitter who post about their research and post about the challenges of doing research. And seeing that there is a community of other Arctic scholars that exists is really heartwarming. And that's hopefully one day I'll be able to properly participate in that field. Um, but until then, I'll be admiring from afar. Thank you so much. Speaking of Twitter, uh, if people want to learn more about your work, is there any way they can follow you online? They can follow me on Twitter. I am not and don't tweet very much. I mostly retweet fun things. But yeah, my Twitter handle is just Emily C T S U I. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Emily. And thanks for this fabulous conversation. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you.